everybody, this is Dr. Adam Reddy, and welcome to the next episode of the One Thing Podcast. This is a very important episode because we're going to be speaking to factors that will lead up to the potential for bone fractures. Bone fractures are one of the leading causes of mortality in adults, and today we're going to unpack all that goes into preventing bone loss and all the factors that may lead to osteoporosis. I'm pleased to bring you our special guest, Dr. John Neustadt, who I went to medical school with at Bastyr University in the naturopathic medicine program. He's one of the brightest clinicians and formulators that I I know, and I'm pleased to bring him to you, and um, you'll enjoy hearing all the depth of knowledge he has about bone density, bone remodeling, and factors that may help strengthen bones. He has a very unique look at the natural and integrative medicine perspective. I know there's all types of natural health practitioners out there, and I think you'll be quick to see that Dr. Newstead is very special in the fact that he integrates a very um, thorough holistic approach but it's standing on a foundation of research so today we'll we'll look into osteoporosis bone health bone density and fracture risk and without further ado welcome to the next episode of the one thing podcast dr newstead welcome to the one thing podcast oh thank you i'm so so excited to be on and talk talking talk with you yeah, it's it's wonderful to speak with you. Um, I, we've known each other for a long time, and I think you know one of the things that has always stood out about um, you to me is, I mean, everybody that interacts with you knows right away how right you are and how intelligent you are and how methodical you are in your thinking. But one thing that people don't realize is that you're quite a compassionate person as well. Um, seeing you in a clinical setting, um, you really, you can really see how much you really care about patients. Well, that's that's sweet of you. And um, regarding how you know methodical in the way I think, I should I should have you talk to my kids because I, I think that they're. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole different thing. <laughs> right. But thank you. Yes, and in terms of of clinical medicine and and being compassionate, I, I think that for clinicians and medicine as a whole, as a profession, it gets into a real danger, uh, danger zone and dangerous territory when we start losing our humanity, when we start understanding that the most important person in that room is the patient. And we need to be focused on the patient and on, on their healing. That's why we do what we, we do. And when people as clinicians start to, if, if they lose that or become jaded to that, I think it's time for them to take a vacation at the very least and try and reconnect with, with that. Mm-hmm. But it also becomes bad for patients. I think that with compassion comes motivation to really try and get the best possible clinical outcomes. And at least for me, it's, it's motivated me to continue to research, 
find out how I can do things better. What do the studies show uh, in terms of helping patients and improving clinical outcomes? And also, I don't think we should lose track of the, the, the benefits of working on ourselves and continually working on ourselves as, as people, as individuals and, and human beings. And that, that makes us all better clinicians and doctors too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've, you've had a really interesting career. Um, and, you know, can you kind of take us through as far as today where you're at in your practice and how you got interested in osteoporosis? Uh, sure. I'd love to. So now I actually do all pro bono, um, just phone consultation work. I, um, you know, talk with a few people a week and help them understand what questions they can ask of their doctors and I'll review labs and um, recommend testing for them, what they can speak with their healthcare providers about. A lot of times, especially with chronic conditions, people are still struggling and I help them synthesize what's going on and give them a fresh perspective so that they can hopefully finally get the help that they've been lacking and start advocating for themselves in, in a different way. I'm not actually in a clinic now because I'm focused full-time on my dietary supplement company that I started while I was in medical practice. I had a private practice in Montana. My family and I have since moved down to uh, San Diego. Mm-hmm. And that uh, dietary supplement company, NBI, is allowing me to help people beyond just those who could walk into my clinic. And I'm so fortunate and feel so grateful that the research that I've done and the products that I've created as a result of that have now been shipped over into people or shipped to people in over 15 countries and really helping people uh, regardless of geography to, to improve their health. And I'm very, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of what, what we're doing with that, uh, with that company. Wonderful. And you get to live in San Diego. And I get to live in San Diego. Exactly. I, I grew up down here. So, so I've, I've basically come home, which is, which is nice. That's good. Yeah. It's a few, few nicer places, I, I would say. So it's, yeah. uh, it's great. Um, so osteoporosis, how, how, how did you get interested in sort of great. drilling down the, the, the yeah. core, you know, kind of aspects of osteoporosis? Great question. So I had patients, like I'm sure most of us do, who have osteoporosis or osteopenia, pre-osteoporosis. And um, I started looking at the research of the osteoporosis research again, so I could figure out how I can do better, how I can serve them better. And in doing so, I found studies and clinical trials on nutrients that can help um, people reduce their fracture risk because that's the most dangerous thing with this, this disease is, is breaking a bone. And I couldn't find the dose or the form of the nutrients in existing products to help patients. And in terms of getting those nutrients, like many of the products that I've created, I had to dispense three, four, five, you know, bottles of different products that were in existence to, to combine different products and get the, the clinical doses of the nutrients. And it, it resulted in people taking a lot of pills and it was really expensive so I had a problem, and um, like I think a lot of entrepreneurs, I decided that I was going to solve this problem, uh, that I figured out a way to manufacture my own, formulate and manufacture my own line of dietary supplements because I needed it. I needed it to help my patients, and it turns out that um, obviously millions of other people need these too mm-hmm. uh, because there were not 
great products on the market that had the dose or the form or the combination of nutrients shown in clinical trials to actually work. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, on that note, um, I think one of the important areas of osteoporosis is just kind of to understand the basic terminology because um, most people are familiar like with what a DEXA scan is and um, if they are 60 years old, they're probably approaching their first DEXA scan sometimes uh, earlier in life. But can you just walk us through some basic terminology in understanding the assessment and treatment of of um, osteoporosis or osteopenia or just, you know, when, when someone's having an evaluation for bone density? Yes, absolutely. Great, great topic. Um, so bone uh, osteoporosis is diagnosed by a bone density scan. It's an x-ray. Um, and the bone density scan results are reported as T-scores. And a T-score will tell you if your bone mineral density is below the median or below average. And if your T-score is from negative 1 to negative 2.5, you have osteopenia, which is pre-osteoporosis. And if a T-score is less than 2.5 or negative 2.5 or lower, negative 2.7, negative 2.8, negative 3, then you have osteoporosis. Now, what's interesting is that while this measures bone density, that's just the mineral content of the bone. The bone is a tissue, and as such, it is made up of different elements. The minerals are just one, one part of the bone. The connective tissue or the collagen is another part of the bone that's important. And a bone density test only measures the mineral content of the bone. And I mention that because people get really scared when they come to me and they talk about, oh, I've got, a, uh, I've got osteoporosis, here's my T-score. And they're focused on that number, that T-score number. Mm -hmm. And in fact, most conventional treatments, and even unfortunately, doctors practicing naturopathic or integrative medicine tend to focus on changing that T-score, changing that bone density. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing with osteoporosis is not the number on, the, on a test. Mm -hmm. It's how predictive is, is that of a fracture. And so the question, I like to teach people what questions to ask. And osteoporosis really is not complicated in terms of from a patient perspective of, of what to ask. The question is, if your doctor or anyone's talking to you about either osteoporosis or, or you know, the diagnosis or the treatment, the question is, for a bone density test or any test, how predictive of this is, is this test of a fracture, that I'm going to fracture a bone? Mm -hmm. Or if they're recommending a solution or a treatment, the question is, well, what does the research show about how much this can reduce my fracture risk? Not mm -hmm. how much is it going to change the number on a test, because in fact, a bone density test only predicts 44% of women who will break a bone and only 21% of men. And fracturing a bone is the most dangerous thing about this disease. In fact, if you're over 65 and fracture a hip with osteoporosis, there is about a 40% chance that you're going to be dead in six months, 20% chance that you're going to be dead in a year. If you happen to survive through that year, uh, there's a 20% chance that you're going to need long-term chronic care and your risk of death is elevated for 10 years after. And in fact, every major medical association include, that has a position on this, a published position statement, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, 
um, North American Menopause Society, uh, World Health Organization, all have correctly concluded, and I've read the research too, and they've correctly concluded that fracture risk depends on factors largely other than bone density. And th those are really important tests. Uh, those are really important concepts to understand when somebody is trying to understand what are the best questions to ask and, and, and what are the best decisions they can make in terms of what they should pursue in terms of improving the bone of their health, uh, the health of their bones. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, some of the other tools then what, that you would use as far as understanding your bone health. I mean, I know there's like the NTX, which is anteleopeptide test and uh, the UCT. I don't, I don't know if you're a proponent of any of these other tools, but if you are, could you comment them? If you're not, um, just some comments on other ways to assess for bone health. Sure. I, I used to test some of those. Those are blood tests. Uh, so NTX, CTX, undercarboxylated osteocalcin, those are all blood tests that, that, that we can run. The most important question is how predictive of those are, are those for fracture, but also does changing one of those actually reduce fracture risk and by how much? Mm -hmm. So they're, they're, they're correlated with osteoporosis and fracture risk. That doesn't necessarily mean it's causative, but they are correlated with it. Mm. And there was an interesting study, an animal study with undercarboxylated osteocalcin. So osteocalcin um, is a protein that is important for bone health. And there's a chemical process that goes on. It gets what's called carboxylated. When it gets carboxylated, that's the healthy form of osteocalcin. And when it's undercarboxylated, it, it can indicate that it's, it's not so healthy. So the undercarboxylated form has been associated with an increased risk of osteoporosis. But in interest, and interestingly enough, there was an animal study that was done where mice were bred to have normal osteocalcin and those and others were bred to not have osteocalcin, meaning they had a high amount of the undercarboxylated osteocalcin. Mm -hmm. And at six months, the, the, the mice that actually had the undercarboxylated osteocalcin, the, the quote unquote bad kind of osteocalcin, had stronger bones than those who had normal osteocalcin <laughs> levels. Which led me when I was reading this research to conclude that the story that we've heard about this one-to-one -one association of osteocalcin or, or these other blood tests um, to, or, or even bone density tests to fracture, to osteoporosis, that it's, a, it's probably more complicated than that. And it's not the whole story. And there are other things going on, which is not actually surprising because osteoporosis is a chronic disease. It's a chronic condition like heart disease, like Alzheimer's disease, like diabetes. And when, when in these chronic conditions, in these chronic diseases, they're multifactorial. There are multiple things potentially going on. And so I've moved away actually from, from testing those blood tests because there is such great research. Again, the goal is on reducing fracture risk. Mm -hmm. There's such great research of and outcomes on the clinical studies of how of building stronger bone and reducing fracture risks uh, that doesn't entail any of those tests. I think a lot of people think, oh, it's got there's got to be a test, there's got to be a test. And the reality is, you know what, there doesn't have to be a test. What there needs to be are good 
clinical trials, hopefully multiple clinical trials, showing that we're growing stronger bones. But more importantly than that, we're reducing fractures. Mm -hmm. And so clinical trials mean that the patients followed a certain regimen and they had reduced fracture risk. Correct. Okay. So can you unpack that a little bit? So if you were to kind of back that out and say, what, what were the key variables or the thing, the trends you're seeing that are important to reduce fracture risk? What, what would that be? So um, let me just start by saying within the, the world of the research, when you start digging into the studies, the osteoporosis and bone studies um, on medications or dietary supplements and nutrients, anything like that. What is typically reported is bone mineral density, not mm-hmm. fracture risk. In fact, we see this even with medications, the bisphosphonates, the most, the most um, commonly prescribed medications like the Fosamax, for example, is that actually has never been shown to prevent a first hip fracture. Mm-hmm. Look at the, what they're reporting in their studies. They're reporting bone mineral density. Right. And not, they're not reporting actual fracture risk uh, in most of the studies. So it's important to always ask, you know, what, what is, what's the reduction in fracture risk mm-hmm. or whatever's being recommended? So when you look at the research and we look at what's actually reporting fracture risk, not everything does. So there are good studies that look at exercise, for example. So a balanced type of exercises. You don't have to go into a gym. People, I think, have this mistaken idea that they've got to go pump iron in a gym, and, and that's just not supported by the research. The, the, the biggest event, the, 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 what's called the most proximal event, the thing that, ju- that pre- precedes, immediately precedes the vast majority of fractures is somebody falling. Mm-hmm. So anybody, anything we can do to increase strength and balance and can reduce the risk of falling naturally reduces the risk of fractures mm-hmm. and other fall-related injuries. So the research is very clear that, no, you don't have to go into a gym. You can. That's great. But even just doing uh, balance exercises like gentle yoga or um, uh, qigong uh, or tai, you know, tai chi or even just going for a walk on uneven surfaces and going up and down, you know, walking up and down a curve or on a gravel road or anything like that, anything that can sort of increase the balance uh, can be very helpful. There's a great exercise I like called the stork exercise. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I wrote about this in a blog. I did a Facebook live on it and wrote about it in a blog uh, on a blog on my website that the, you stand for while you're brushing your teeth, you know, it should be two minutes brushing your teeth. So somebody stands on one leg while they're brushing the bottom teeth for a minute and you can sort of touch the counter, the sink, if you need to balance yourself a little more, but try not to. And you stand on that one leg for a minute. And then when you switch to the top teeth, you stand, you switch legs and you do that on the top and you do that twice a day. That can be incredibly helpful. So there are simple exercises. Even people can just work into their daily routines. that can be very helpful. Other than that, diet's very important. A whole foods, plant-based diet, the Mediterranean style diet has been shown to uh, promote bone health, to reduce the risk of osteoporosis. Um, in fact, to reduce the risk of uh, cancer, death from cancer, diabetes, obesity, all-cause mortality. Uh, the list goes on and on. The Mediterranean-style diet uh, is not a fad diet. It's an eating pattern. It's, it's the most studied dietary pattern in the world, unambiguously over the last 
60 plus years of research. There's not one negative study showing how phenomenal that is for all of these health conditions and osteoporosis um, as well. So, so even, if, let me stop you for a second there. So even if someone has a bone loss process or bone density issues that have already started, um, this is, the Mediterranean diet is a useful tool to slow progression or potentially help with bone health? So I, I, I think yes to both of those. Now, there's an interesting dilemma in medicine, and it comes down to judgment in, from the clinician. And hopefully your clinician, whoever he is or she is, has good judgment. The, the gold standard are clinical trials, right? So how do we make, how we make our clinical decisions, hopefully, uh, my, my perspective for me is I'm going to go with good published clinical trials. That's first and foremost. If those don't exist, I want to see, um, you know, is there good uh, epidemiological data? That is population level data showing that things work. And that means dietary pattern, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, if that doesn't exist, are there, you know, are there animal studies? If that doesn't exist, you know, what are the, the molecular mechanisms that we, that we know of that I can at least sort of hang my hat on and say, okay, this makes sense to me from a biochemical and physiological point of view that this, this could help them. Uh, what does traditional medicine say? Um, if we're talking about botanical medicine, you know, how do they use these agents? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the Mediterranean diet, there aren't any clinical trials that I'm aware of that, that show you follow Mediterranean diet, a controlled clinical trial, meaning this, this patient population of you know, X number of people, let's say 50 people are going to follow this prescribed diet and the other 50 are going to follow a different type of diet. And we'll see which one uh, over two years, because that's how long it takes to do a repeat bone density test. We're going to see what their bone density changes. And then also, are there any fractures during that time period? That, that, that data just it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But what we know is nutrition is the fuel for our bodies to, to work. So biochemistry, very simply, is how the body uses vitamins, minerals, fats, and proteins to do its job. Mm -hmm. And how nutritional deficiencies and um, environmental toxins and allergies and infections can interfere with that normal function and cause disease to, to occur. So there is good studies showing that a eating green leafy vegetables can improve bone health. And mm -hmm. that's just part of the overall dietary pattern. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big advocate then of looking, you know, taking that dietary pattern that's unambiguously shown to have all these health benefits and saying, yes, that's going to be the best one for, for osteoporosis as well, especially because eating green leafy vegetables have actually been shown to, to improve bone density, uh, or I should say reduce bone density loss. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So it's it's hard to kind of poke any holes at the Mediterranean diet as far as its um, spectrum of nutrients that it provides. That's correct. It's just it, yeah. If anyone can, I'd love to hear it. But I've yeah yeah, yeah exactly. years of research and nobody's been able to do it yet. So it's pretty pretty impressive body of research that's that's out there. Um, yeah. So I like to start with diet and lifestyle always first. It's what you and I were trained in naturopathic medical school and educated. Um, to, to look at and I would, you know, it's the foundation for long-term health and that's hopefully what we're helping people with. And then I go to, um, you know, 
diet, lifestyle, exercise, all that's in the same category there. And then dietary supplements last, and if necessary, medications. Mm-hmm. Um, as a general rule, and osteoporosis is no different. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say you know we're sitting down and speaking to someone who has like a T-score, say, of um, in the range of mild osteoporosis, and they're sitting down weighing bisphosphonates that they've been discussing with um, a rheumatologist versus taking a natural approach. Where, where do you start that conversation? So I always start the conversation by trying to reduce their anxiety because most of the time people are feeling anxious. They come in, they've got this diagnosis of osteoporosis. Let's say they've got a, you said mild osteoporosis, say negative 2.6, negative 2.5, negative 2.6, mild osteoporosis. So I start the conversation by saying, let's, let's first understand what that means. And the most, and I've already said it on this podcast, in this interview, the most dangerous thing about osteoporosis is breaking a bone. So how predictive of, 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 an, of, uh, of a fracture is a bone density scan? It only predicts 44% of women and 21% of men who get a fracture. And every medical agent association that's got a published position statement has correctly concluded that fracture risks depend on factors largely other than bone density. So I always try and put that in its proper context. And I say, okay, let's look then or what are the things that are most predictive of fracture? And let's understand your risk for those so that we can tackle this from a more holistic and integrated perspective because the rheumatologist, their primary care physician, undoubtedly, 99.9% of the time, is only focusing on that number on the test. And they've got the patient so worked up and so scared and so anxious that it's important to, and they're not, frankly, they're not being true to the research. It's important to step back a little bit and educate the patient, say, okay, here's the landscape. Let's all take a deep breath. There's a lot of things we can do here, and let's empower the patient to make the best informed decision as possible, whether they're going to go with medications or, or not. So the most predictive, um, so I asked the patient, so you've had this diagnosis of, of osteoporosis. Have you had a previous fracture uh, when you've had osteoporosis? Well, if the answer is no, that's excellent, because the biggest predictor of a future fracture with osteoporosis is if you've already had a past fracture with osteoporosis. So immediately their risk of fracture goes down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Have you, are you taking any medications that can cause osteoporosis or fractures? And there's, a, there's quite a list. The most, most common ones are steroids, prednisone. A lot of people on autoimm- with autoimmune conditions will be on prednisone. Uh, prednisone increases their risk of osteoporosis uh, and fractures uh, dramatically. Uh, a lot, one that's very common that most people don't, aren't aware of and even most physicians aren't aware of are the acid-blocking medications. Mm-hmm. The proton pump inhibitors, H2 blockers, that's Prilosec, Protonic, Zantac. Um, those are never approved by the FDA for chronic long-term use. They were only approved for, uh, I think, two or three weeks. But people, especially now that they're over-the-counter, and even doctors will prescribe them uh, for long-term, people are taking them for years. Mm-hmm. And the research has shown, studies have shown that over, you know, after four years of taking it, over time, the, the risk of fracture keeps going up and up. And over four years, the risk of fracture, I think, maxes out at, in their study at least, you know, increase the risk of fracture by hip fracture uh, by up to, I think it was 40%, which mm-hmm. is huge. 
Um, so if they're on those medications, you know, I, I really like to start by, by evaluating why and seeing if there's something that we could figure out. And I'm sure you do this all the time in your practice. You know, how can I get them off those medications? What else can we do? And a lot of times it's not that challenging. It can be quite easy, especially with uh, acid reflux Some simple dietary changes sometimes is, does the trick. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are definitely other natural things that can be done that, that don't seem to carry the risk of osteoporosis. They don't block the acid. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, in terms of that person sitting in front of me, you know, I start to talk about, uh, you know, I want to make sure too, they don't potentially have any malabsorption issues. That's a risk factor for osteoporosis. So irritable bowel disease, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, you know, I, IBD, irritable bowel disease, like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, a celiac disease, uh, things like that are, are documented, well known to, to cause osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. And then I like to talk about dietary supplements. Mm -hmm. And what does the research support in terms of what, what we can do? Everyone thinks calcium, they take calcium and they're protected. And that's simply just not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, it comes back to, again, fracture risk reduction. How much has the research shown that calcium and vitamin D can reduce fractures? And, and do they? And the, the research is, you know, clear that, yes, they do have the potential to reduce fractures. Calcium and vitamin D as dietary supplements can reduce fractures by about 20%. Yeah. So let me, let me just kind of interject with it. Like even when we were going through our training, you know, when we'd see it, this was, you know, back in 2004 through 2006 era. I mean, mm -hmm. patients were at the most told to take a certain amount of calcium in a supplementation form. Vitamin D was new on the scene and then to focus on calcium rich foods in the diet. And that was pretty much the main thing. And then of course we looked at some of these other factors like hormone health and, you know, exercise, but how has thing, how have things emerged? And I, I want you to, you know, with the time we have, I want you to get into kind of how you, you, you formulated a supplement called osteo -K. And I want to kind of hear your line of reasoning, how we've come from such a simplistic approach, you know, in the last 13 years to where we're at right now. Right. So uh, where we're at right now and, and why I created OsteoK and the variation of that OsteoK minis is because I couldn't find the dose and the form of vitamin K shown in clinical trials to reduce fractures. So there are lots of other nutrients out there. And if you look at bone support, dietary supplements, osteoporosis dietary supplements, yes, calcium and vitamin D are the most famous nutrients on the scene. But if you look at some of these formulas that are out there, you just go to any store, you know, you'll see a lot of other nutrients, magnesium, boron, uh, herbs, um, like clover. Um, you know, lots of things have been used in dietary supplements. Question is, what's been shown to reduce fractures? So magnesium has never been shown in any clinical trial to reduce fractures. Boron has never been shown in any clinical trial to reduce fractures. There, there, there are four agents, four things out there that have been shown to reduce fractures as dietary supplements, not just build bone density. Cause again, that's not, that's not that predictive. They are calcium and vitamin D uh, and strontium which is approved in, in, as a medication in, in uh, Europe. I don't use it in my supplement, and I'll tell you why in, in a minute. And the other is, is a specific form of vitamin K called MK4. Vitamin K is a category of molecules 
um, divided into vitamin K1 and then vitamin K2. Vitamin K2 itself is a category. And there are multiple forms of vitamin K2 and they're designated by letters. The two most common and that you'll find in dietary supplements are MK4 and MK7. Of those two, it is only the MK4 form that is shown to reduce fractures in clinical trials. The MK7 is in dietary supplements. It's actually a lot more popular. It's a lot less expensive to manufacture with um, than the MK4. Both MK4, any form of vitamin K actually will, will change those blood tests that we talked about, the endocarboxylated osteocalcin, but in terms and, and improve bone density. But where the rubber meets the road is, has it been shown to reduce fractures? And the answer is the only form of vitamin K2 that's been shown to reduce fractures in clinical trials as the endpoint, as actually what they looked at and reported is MK4. It's been so well studied. There are over 7,000 volunteers followed for up to eight years with the clinical dose, 45 milligrams per day of the MK4 um, with age-related osteoporosis, you know, postmenopausal osteoporosis, osteoporosis caused by uh, medications like uh, prednisone. It's been used in smaller doses in children. Uh, it's been so well studied and shown to stop and reverse bone loss um, from osteoporosis and medications that cause osteoporosis, shown to reduce fractures that the, it's been approved as a medication in Japan since 1995. Now, you and I were already in school, medical school, uh, after that, but we hadn't, you know, we started to hear a little bit about that research, but it hadn't really infiltrated and gotten over to the U.S. widely at that point. And now, because of the internet, we have access to research all over the world with some of the, some of the best researchers are, are working on to help people. Yeah. And so, I couldn't find in my practice at the time, there was no supplement on the market, that contain the clinical dose, 45 milligrams of MK4 per day, shown to reduce fractures and approved in Japan as, as you know, to, to treat bone pain caused by osteoporosis and to treat osteoporosis um, in a supplement with calcium and vitamin D. So I went ahead and created it. Now it's been so, that nutrient is so powerful, but it's actually been shown to reduce fractures by more than 80%, hmm. which is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not a drug in the U.S. It's not approved by the FDA to diagnose, treat, or prevent any disease. Um, it is available as a dietary supplement to promote bone health. And the research is very clear, though, that that nutrient alone, uh, but especially when combined with calcium and vitamin D, uh, can reduce fractures by more than 80%. Mm -hmm. Strontium, in contrast, uh, the research is pretty clear. It can reduce fractures by about 45% but it may compete with calcium for absorption. So that's why it's not in my supplement. And it also, if you take it, it gives false bone density tests. So it will improve bone density, uh, but the radiologist needs to know how to correct for that if you're taking it. Most don't in the US, but they do in Europe because it is a medication. Um, ir irrespective of that, it does reduce fractures. But I think with the calcium and vitamin D and the MK4, that simple solution uh, with clinical trials showing over 80% fracture reduction, that that's amazing. And that's, mm -hmm. so that's what I, why I created what I did. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, it also, could you just talk a little bit more about strontium? There's a little bit more controversy surrounding it, I, I believe, um, as far as the different forms that um, are safe. So strontium that's approved as a medication in 
Europe and what was studied was a form of strontium called strontium ranolate. Mm -hmm. Strontium is the mineral, ranolate is the carrier. It's, it's a protein that, uh, proprietary, patented protein that carries the, the, the atom, the, the boron, or not the boron, the strontium into the body. It's not available in the U.S. in that form. In the U.S., it's, a, it's typically in dietary supplements as strontium citrate. And uh, citrate, if you see a form of a mineral like magnesium, strontium, um, manganese, boron, um, any of these, uh, if it's in the citrate form or the malate form, those are uh, the, some of the most absorbable forms. If you see it as an oxide form, if you see strontium oxide, for example, it's, it's not absorbable. Your body can only absorb about 2% of the mineral that's mm -hmm. in the oxide form. So don't, don't buy that. Save your money if you're going to get a you know, mineral supplement or even a multivitamin supplement. Make sure you look on the bottle and it says the minerals as an amino acid chelate or as citrate or malate because uh, those are the most absorbable forms. So you'll be getting your, your money's worth. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the form that's approved in, in Europe is not available in the U.S., the strontium, but it is available as strontium uh, citrate. Got it. Okay. So um, where does, you know, I like to kind of have a continuum in my practice where, you know, I, I sort of know that there's a place for conventional medicine in, in most conditions that I manage, you know, they're, there seems to be sort of like this constant assessment of jumping in and out of Western and integrative medicine just to kind of see where the patient would be best served. Is there a place where you feel like you turn towards more of a Western approach in osteoporosis? Absolutely, yes. So where their fracture risk is, is uh, elevated, um, more than just a mild osteoporosis, then I start to consider it. So if they've had a previous a fracture with osteoporosis, then it's important to have that discussion of whether a medication is, um, is warranted. Uh, if they're taking medications that cause osteoporosis and fractures and can't get off of them, then that's important to have that, have that uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. If um, they've had a stroke and they can't exercise, they can't move, that's a very high risk for osteoporosis. Or they've got what's called hemiplegia, you know, partial paralysis in their body, um, especially of the, of the, of one leg, you know, that's an increased risk for falls and fall related injuries and disuse, not being able to use a limb post-stroke is a risk for osteoporosis, increases risk for osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, if they've had an additional, if they've had a fracture already, then, then they'd have that conversation. Um, or if their bone mineral density continues to decline, continues to get worse and worse, especially then if they do have a fracture. Want, I want to have that conversation. Now, I don't, I don't totally throw out bone mineral density. It's, it's useful, but I think it's, it's important to, to understand it's one piece of the puzzle and not to be um, relied on too much and not to give it too much power and too much weight. But if the bone density continues to go down, um, then it's something that, that I, I want to be more concerned with in terms of just focusing on getting their bone density up. Um, uh, the osteoporosis medications can do that. They can also reduce fractures in, in many, but not all cases, like I mentioned with Fosamax. In fact, the bisphosphonate category of drugs, the ability for them to reduce fractures is only explained about uh, uh, the change in bone density can only explain, I think it was 25 or 27% 
of the reduction in fracture risk. Mm-hmm. There are other things going on. But if we want the best drug in terms of fracture risk reduction, uh, it's Forteo. Uh, it's a parathyroid hormone injection. You have mm-hmm. to do it by injection. Mm-hmm. Um, but that does have the best fracture reduction on it. And from my point of view, that is the, the best osteoporosis medication. Hmm. Great. Thanks for, for sharing that with us. And you've given the listeners some good questions to ask if they're sitting down and having those conversations. So I appreciate that very much. Um, so um, just real briefly, and then I want to just ask you one final question here. Um, just real briefly, is there any imaging studies that you pair with DEXA that you think are either emerging or useful? No, I don't. I mean, there's the, the quantitative computed tom- tomography, QCT, that's out there. Um, it's much more, sen- it's, it's stronger in terms of uh, it, it can detect, it's more it's sensitive at detecting uh, bone density and changes in bone density. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, there are a couple challenges with that. One, it's still bone density. So, so at least with a, with a traditional bone density test, we know how predictive that is of fracture. With a QCT test, we really don't know if that changes the predictive value or not of fracture. Mm-hmm. And then second of all, the, the results, the T-score that comes out of that, the results that come from that don't correlate with our understanding of how to diagnose the disease. I see. So is it really that if somebody's QCT test that shows uh, much greater bone loss, um, well, is that more clinically significant or... How does that fit into the diagnosis of osteoporosis? I think it's just a little too early to, to know where that fits in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to my knowledge, that doesn't increase the predictive value of fractures any uh, anymore. Okay, gotcha. So um, if you could just uh, you know share with us just a little bit more about how um, the listeners can learn about you. I know that you do some really cool videos on uh, Facebook, Facebook Lives. Just a few more information then also can tell us about the um, – MBI Health. Sure, I'd love to. So uh, people can get a hold of me through um, my website, nbihealth.com, nbihealth.com. There's a contact form in there, and and my staff will get those to me if you reach out to to me through that. I am a huge advocate of education and health. Hopefully you've understood that from uh, from this interview today, that uh, helping people understand how they can make better decisions for themselves and their family for their health. So on my website, you're going to find tons of information, blog after blog after blog about different health conditions and issues that you may be uh, dealing with, uh, the products that I created, all the re- hundreds of research uh, citations on there supporting the formulas uh, and the formulations that I've created because like, I don't want people, don't believe me, you know, do your own research. Um, I'm convinced though that I've looked at the research well enough that it stands for itself. Uh, my products do and my work does. And I also have uh, Facebook uh, live videos that I do uh, usually once a week uh, on the MBI health uh, Facebook page or the MBI Facebook page. So you can find, find information there um, and send out a newsletter every, every couple weeks with uh, blogs and special offers and new product announcements. I just announced a new product uh, yesterday, actually very proud uh, spent uh, about a year developing and researching uh, called joint relief um, that uh, for joint pain to improve, uh, reduce inflammation 
improve uh, range of motion and mobility and pain-free activity and basically just get people off the sidelines and back to enjoying uh, the things that they love most, especially now that it's warming up towards summer. That is awesome. Well, Dr. Newstead, it's, it's always great to, to speak with you. Thank you for being on. Um, I learned a ton. I'm sure um, everybody else did too. And um, yeah, I, I think we're going to talk with you down the road here soon about another topic. So I look forward to that as well. Me too. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Randy, for having me on. Okay. Thanks so much. We'll, we'll be in touch. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the Osteoporosis episode with Dr. John Newstead. I was very pleased to bring this guest to you. Um, I thought that this was very enlightening. For me, it pointed out the major importance of vitamin K2 and bone physiology, and also how to have perspective on the DEXA scans. And what really matters is outcomes and what we should be really focusing on is how to prevent bone fractures and there's so many components to that but I thought this was very enlightening to kind of keep focused on what really matters such as a anti-inflammatory diet um, also good hormone health exercise and strength and conditioning and obviously good mineral intake including vitamin D good calcium forms and vitamin K2 and I think different practitioners will also bring in um, the importance of bioidentical hormone replacement therapy Um, we're also learning a lot about the impact of the gut microbiota and um, bone density and I think it was alluded to in the importance of, of good absorption in the gut basically any mineral deficiency that you have is going to be a risk factor for bone density issues and digestive health is a big part of what provides good mineral levels in the body so I do think this episode really pointed out a major focus of outcome oriented management of osteoporosis and I thought it was helpful to hear about the context of utilizing the DEXA scan to understand the context of what an individual is dealing with as far as bone density issues. Um, Thank you for tuning in. Please share this episode widely. Um, We want the word to get out to people. Uh, We're trying to bridge the worlds between naturopathic, functional, integrated medicine, and conventional medicine so that we have holistic views of health and so patients feel prepared and empowered and that clinicians can look at conditions through an integrative and functional lens and and be able to discuss the underlying root cause of the condition so that the therapies and management tools that we choose are rational and logical and, and directed to favorable outcomes. Well, thank you so much again. It's a pleasure to bring these episodes to you. It's a great honor that you listen to these And uh, we'll see you next time.